Enable us to worship you, to pray to you, to hear your word, and most importantly, to obey it. Lord God, we just confess that without your grace in our lives, we are spiritually dead. And we need you, Lord, to breathe and resuscitate us so that we might be alive in Christ by his power. Lord Jesus, you are you're the king. You are the, the Lord who walks among the lampstands of the churches. And Lord, we thank you that you've established a lampstand here in Hingham, in this church, among this body. And we thank you that you walk among your church and that you hold the star of this church in your hand. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would be with us this morning. We, we offer our lives up to you as your congregation here on the South Shore. Lord, forgive us of our worldliness. Forgive us of our shallow thoughts of you that we had this week, or our lack of thoughts of you this week. Forgive us, Lord, for living like atheists, even though we proclaim to be Christians. Forgive us, Lord, for uh, the careless things we've said to one another this week, for the impure thoughts and uh, greedy ambitions we've harbored this week. Lord, forgive us for uh, our lack of prayer, our lack of concern for the kingdom of God. But Jesus, we thank you that you are a great Savior. And so we come to you knowing that there is mercy and forgiveness in your hands. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would show us again this morning your greatness and your majesty. Continue to wean us off our addiction to this world. And Lord, give us a fresh taste of eternal life this morning. Lord, I pray for this church that your hand would be upon it, that you would bless it. Lord, I pray for the members of this church that you would strengthen them in their faith in you. I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you who's honestly asking questions about you. Lord, that you would answer their questions. Lord, I pray for uh, our team that's down in Mississippi right now, uh, helping out with the recovery efforts and looking for ways for our church to be more involved. Lord, protect them, use them, and give them, God, some, some ways that we can be further involved in the, as a church. Lord, teach us as a church how to serve the world around us. We, we just, Lord, we feel the pressure from our culture to constantly be self-absorbed. And God, we just want to fight against that. So we pray, help us to be servants, to pour our lives out as a congregation for others. God, we thank you for our missionary who's with us here today, John Templehoff, who's our missionary in South Africa. We thank you, Lord, for his uh, presentation he's going to be giving at noon. We pray that many would come to hear about it. Lord, thank you for his work in that country that is absolutely ravaged by the AIDS epidemic. God, we pray that you would continue to use him and his wife as they minister in the public school system to do training and teaching to help, to help shore up the, the moral fabric of that nation. Lord, we pray for South Africa, for uh, people to be reconciled to one another. Lord, reconcile black and white in South Africa. Reconcile the different tribal members to one another. We pray that the church might be a healing and reconciling force in that nation. Lord Jesus, we pray for uh, our church here that you might continue to knit us together as a body. Lord, we, we again feel the pressure of this world to just be individual, isolated people living our personal lives. But Lord, we know you've called us into community as a church. So Lord, knit us together across all those barriers that keep us apart in secular life. Lord, knit together the singles and the marrieds. Knit together the young and the old. Knit together the, the haves with the have-nots. Lord, I pray, just bind us together as your body. I pray, Lord, for marriages this morning, that you would strengthen them. For husbands and wives who are here, I pray for husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. I pray, Lord, for wives here to honor and respect their husbands. I pray, Lord, for them to love each other deeply. 
God, I pray for my single brothers and sisters here, that you would encourage them as they face uh, the challenges of life without a partner. And Lord, I pray, Lord, just use their lives. Help them to give themselves completely over to the work of the gospel. And Lord, I especially pray for single moms and single dads here today as they try to do that enormous task of raising a family. God, would you just give them special strength to do that? God, I pray uh, for this building project that we need. Lord, we need more space. This is really a minor thing in the grand scheme of things, but God, you can do it. Lord, give us the facility space that we need. Lord, help us with our parking problem before the snow comes. God, we pray that you would provide all of our needs as a congregation and help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. And now, Jesus, as we open up the Word, as we open up the Bible, we ask that you would speak through it to our hearts. We long to hear the voice of God. We long to hear that voice that's more than just a voice. It's a life-changing power. Change our lives this morning as we study the Bible. We pray all this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. We invite any children here, kindergarten to second grade, to be dismissed to Children's Church, the door over here by the piano. When the rest of you open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, we're studying verses 41 to 52 today. If you're using a pew Bible and you're unfamiliar with Luke, it's on page 1015, 1015 in the pew Bible. Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 52. Let me read the story and then we'll jump into it. Luke chapter 2, verse 41. Every year, his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you troubled us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. You know, I'm absolutely fascinated by this story. And the more I studied it in preparation for this sermon, the more fascinated I became. It's just an intriguing little story. I think it's fascinating for one reason. Because uh, this is the only story we have of anything from Jesus' childhood. I mean, think about this. Jesus is easily the most influential person in all of human history. 
He is. I mean, his, his influence is greater today around the world than it was when he was here 2,000 years ago. It's, it's only grown over time. You look at all the people who have influenced humanity. This is the most influential person. And yet, all we have of him is we have a few stories of when he was a baby, and then most of the stories are from age 30 when he started his public ministry, age 30 or so, and then about three years until his death, burial, resurrection, and then we have a lot of information given to that few-day period. And, and then he's, he returns to heaven, and the most of the New Testament then is a reflection upon his life and ministry. But we have this kind of black hole of you know, birth to age 30. You know, what happened? It's interesting that we would know so little about a person who's influenced the world so much. So I just find this fascinating. This is the one story we have of, from his childhood. And it's, it's here in Luke, and we have a glimpse of it. I don't know, I also find this story fascinating because of that exchange between Mary and Jesus. It's just such a poignant moment. There's so much going on there. You know, you have Mary, she's flipping out because Jesus is lost. And then you have, you have Jesus' just kind of calm response. And then he has that line, didn't you know I was going to be in my father's house? And you know, it's like in that little phrase, there's this huge, profound spiritual commentary taking place. And, and you know, it's like, whoa, who is this kid? I feel like uh, reading this passage is kind of like when you, you know, come to a fence and you look through a little hole in the fence and you see that on the other side of the wall there's all of this incredible stuff going on that you didn't know was going on. And you're like, wow, I didn't know all that was... And it's kind of like that. This is a little hole in the wall and you peek into Jesus and you go, whoa, what is he saying? So there's so much here we can learn about who Jesus is and what his mission was and is. Uh, and so let's just jump into the text and, and sort of look at Christ through this very unique, interesting story of Jesus' boyhood. It says, verse 41, Every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. Uh, you're probably familiar with the Passover. It's the most famous, perhaps, of Jewish festivals. Uh, it's, it's one of the most high holy days in Judaism. The Passover was uh, and is the celebration, it's the commemoration of when Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt. And if you remember the story, on that night before they escaped, they, they took the blood of the Passover lamb and they put it over the doorposts, sort of a prefigurement of Christ. And then that night when the angel of death came to curse Egypt, those who had the blood over their houses were passed over. And, and they were saved. And so uh, the Jews celebrate this every year. And then there's the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which went for about a week afterward. So it was a week-long celebration. And, and it was a pilgrim feast, which means that Jews from all over Palestine and also all over the Roman world were expected to come to Jerusalem to celebrate it. This wasn't like, you know, the Sabbath that you just celebrate in your house or something like that. I mean, this was just, it was huge. It was a huge national party and celebration. People would come to, to Jerusalem. Uh, scholars and historians tell us that around that period, Jerusalem's population during that week might have swollen by several hundred thousand. As people just crammed into every available bedroom, you know, living room, anywhere they could sleep. People just crammed into houses. It was, you know, this is a really pulsating, exciting events, and, and people traveling from all over. So when you think of Mary and Joseph go up to Jerusalem for the Passover, you've got to think of something like it. You've got to think, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Smith went in to the hat shell on 4th of July. Right? You've got to have a picture like that in your mind of just crowds and people and excitement and, and anticipation. 
And they did it every year. They were very faithful. And this year they go up there. Jesus is 12. Uh, he's a year before his uh, bar mitzvah, before he became a son of the, of the commandments. So he's almost a, a man in Jewish reckoning. And he's going up with his family. And that's when this interesting thing occurs. Verse 43. After the feast was over, so a week later, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among the relatives and friends. Now, maybe you read that, you're like, well, how could that happen? How could they travel a day without knowing where their kid was? I mean, you know, what kind of parents are these? But, you know, I mean, really, you have to understand, these were huge caravans. Again, it's a pilgrim feast. Whole villages would travel together. Uh, and, and, you know, friends and relatives. Uh, it was a big journey. It was about 80 miles. It's about 80 miles from Nazareth down to Jerusalem, especially if you went around Samaria, crossed over the Jordan, went on the Perea, came back over, which most uh, Jews would do. So this is like a four-day journey. It's a long thing. And Jesus is 12. He's almost a man. And, you know, come on, Jesus is a good boy. <laughs> uh, probably, you know, a perfect child, if ever there was one. So, you know, they're, they're, this is, you know, I'm sure his parents have just kind of gotten used to, you know, his good behavior. So you know, Jesus is with his friends. We're all friends and family here. He's almost a man. So, you know, he's with his friends, and we're leaving. We're going down to going back up to Nazareth. And where's Jesus? I don't know. I haven't seen him. Oh, don't worry about it. And they you know, travel along. Have you seen Jesus? Oh, don't worry about it. And I'm sure they get to that final camp or wherever they camp at the end of day one of the journey, of this four-day journey back. And now they start really asking in earnest, have you seen Jesus? Have you seen? And they go through all the places he could have been. They probably double-check and triple-check. And then it starts to dawn on them, he's not here. And I can imagine their, their sort of terror as parents, I don't know if you ever had your kid missing. My, my two-year-old went missing this spring for just like two minutes. And I was like, Wah! you know, flipping out. She, uh, she's three now, but she was two at the time. I, I was, it was this spring. I was in the backyard. I was doing some work, some yard work, and she was playing there. And I just turned my back. I mean, it couldn't have been more than like a minute or a half, two minutes. But that's all a two-year-old needs, all right? Two-year-olds are clueless and highly mobile, which is a bad combination. <laughs> so I turn around. I'm like, hey, where are you you know, look, and then I'm starting to move a little faster, and the heart rate's going up, and then I'm like running to the front yard where the street is, and I'm looking around, you know, I'm starting to hyperventilate, and, and across the street I see my neighbor, he's out front, and he's going like this, you know, pointing down the street, so I run to the sidewalk, and I mean, she's just cruising, woo, down the sidewalk, I don't know where she's going, but she's like, you know, three, four houses down, just wow. So I'm like, you know, go after her and, uh, you know, got her and try to instruct her and, in, you know, the boundaries of the house and all that. But was, even the two minutes, I was like in utter terror. Could you imagine not having your kid for a day? It reminds me of that old, that, that corny movie from a few years back, Home Alone. Remember that corny movie? It was Macaulay Culkin, you know, that, that whole thing. Um, if, if you haven't seen it, it's a story of like this family and they're going to Paris for a Christmas vacation and you know they have all these kids and in the hustle and bustle of getting the kids there and getting to the airport they leave behind like the five-year-old and he's home alone you know by him so it's sort of the story of his uh, you know adventures while his parents are gone but you know there's that moment when the mom is in the plane and the plane is leaving for Paris and suddenly she's like (gasps) and so this must have been one of those moments for Mary and Joseph he's not here he's been by himself for a day where is he so it says Verse 45, when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. So now it's a day journey back. I'm going to say that was probably a 
tense little donkey ride back to Jerusalem, don't you think? <laughs> you know? I mean, this is just conjecture, but I'm guessing you wouldn't have wanted to been Joseph. On the <laughs> Doesn't say it in the Bible, but I'm just reflecting on life experience. Um, can I have an amen from the men? That's right. So there they are, traveling back all the way, all day, wondering if now it's two days, and they get back to Jerusalem. And then they probably start asking around what places they stayed and people they knew. Have you seen them? Have you seen them? Have you seen them? And then it says in verse 46, after three days... Now, I, think, I, don't, I don't think that means they searched Jerusalem for three days. I think it means on the third day. So like day one out, day two back, day three they find them. So they, they start searching. I, I think that's what... It, not quite translated that clearly in English, but I think in Greek that's what it's saying. But anyway, so they're looking for him. And where do they find him? This is the interesting scene. In the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, verse 46, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. You know, what an interesting juxtaposition of scenes. You have... The frantic Mary searching and Joseph searching and they're going asking around and they're traveling and they're, they're terrified and they're worried. And they finally find Jesus and where is he? Is he out in the street, you know, exhausted in the gutter from crying? You know, is, is he starving and worried? No, he's just he's sitting in the temple, you know, hanging out with the teachers of the law, having a Bible study. He's asking questions and they're asking him questions and people are frankly amazed. This kid's like a little spiritual prodigy. He's a, he's a little spiritual genius. You know, they're looking at him, and you know, these are the teachers of Israel. These are the, the grand theologians of his day, and they're amazed at him. It'd be like, you know, if a 12-year-old went and played his violin at Boston Conservatory, and all the professors were amazed. It's that kind of thing. Like, there's this little uh, precocious child here, and he's answering questions, and he has insights into the text. It's amazing. And so here his parents come, and they find him. He's not freaking out. He's not worried. He's just, you know, talking. And they're like, oh, and they see it, and they're astonished. And then comes this, this wonderful exchange between Mary and Jesus. I, just, I think this is such a wonderful little moment in the Bible. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Literally in Greek it's, Son, why uh, did you do to us thusly? Why did you do this to us? You're killing us here. What are you doing? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Now again, that word anxiously there, you see that? I think that's under-translated. In Greek, it's a lot stronger than just, you know, we're feeling a little anxious. No, no, no. It's interesting, that word occurs three times in Luke and Acts. Twice it occurs in Luke chapter 16, which if, if you're familiar, that's the, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. If you, are you familiar with this parable? It's a parable where, where Lazarus, the poor man, goes to heaven and the rich man goes to hell. And he's suffering torment in hell. And that's the word he uses to describe the pain of being in hell. Okay. <laughs> the other time the word occurs is in the book of Acts when uh, the Apostle Paul is saying goodbye to the elders of Ephesus. And he tells them, I will never see you again. And the elders of Ephesus feel this grief, this agony of losing a loved one because they'll never see him again. So when it says here that Mary and Joseph were anxious. No, 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 no. You know, it's more like, you're putting us through hell, kid! We are in torment. You, blah. you know, I don't know what to hug you or strangle you. I mean, it's that kind of thing. So, you know, just this, this incredible just outburst, all this pent-up worry, and it's finally just coming out. 
And then look at Jesus' answer. <laughs> why were you searching for me? <laughs> what do you mean, why was I searching for you? <laughs> Come here! <laughs> you know. <laughs> You're like, what? What is he thinking? But then you see the next line, and here, here's where it's just like the thunderbolt. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? And suddenly it's like, ooh. Who are you? <laughs> what do you mean? In fact, his parents don't even get it. Look at verse 50. But they did not understand what he was saying to them. This is where worlds collide, okay? You have two completely different worlds coming together here. You have the frantic parents looking for their child, which we can all relate to. And then they run into this Jesus, and he's, he's in such a different place. He's in such a different plane of, of reality that he's like, you know, I don't understand what the hubbub is. Didn't you know I would be in my father's house? And in that little phrase, there is so much there. It's, it's again, that little hole in the fence and you look into it and you realize that this is not just some rebellious teenager who's trying to give his parents a heart attack. This, this is something we've never really experienced before. Who is this? And so I, I just want to think about that sentence with you. And, and I, it tells us a lot about Jesus. Uh, in fact, I think that we can learn two uh, major things about who Jesus was from this verse. The first thing is that we see, obviously, is that Jesus had a unique Identity. That's number one. He had a unique identity. There's no other kid like this. This is someone different, a kind of person we've never experienced before. He had a completely unique identity. Uh, he, he says to Mary, you know, Mary says to him, your father and I have been looking for you. And he says, but I'm in my father's house. And so something, some shift is taking place there. Jesus ha- understands himself in a completely unique way. He, he understands a relationship to God in, in the kinds of terms that people didn't use. I mean, he calls the temple my father's house. I mean, look, people just did not talk about the temple that way. That's not how you talked about that building. But Jesus is like, oh yeah, you know, it's my dad's pad. Isn't that where you think I'd be? Here, at the temple, in my father's house? And it's like, ooh. There's almost like a, a carefree um, familiarity. There's an intimacy, a, a casual intimacy in the way he speaks about the most holy things. So, and, and whoever this Jesus is, his identity transcends even parent-child relationships and even enables him to talk about the temple in a way that, that kind of transcends and just leaps over all the Jewish categories. He's someone so different. Who is this guy? And I think this is where a lot of people, uh, and, and maybe this is your case, as they think about Jesus and, and learn about him, this is where a lot of people have a hard time with Jesus. I mean, Jesus as historical figure, no problem. You know, plenty of historical references to Christ to know that he was a historical figure. Uh, Jesus as a religious leader, of course. Uh, Jesus as someone to respect and admire in some ways. I mean, you don't even have to be a Christian to respect and admire Jesus. I mean, he was an amazing person. But then when you go to the next level of saying Jesus was more than just a person. He was, in some ways, the unique Son of God. Or maybe even God the Son in human flesh. You know, when you start going to that level, I think that's where a lot of people have a hard time. Uh, I was talking to a guy this summer when I was on my sabbatical. We, many of you know we had an addition put on our, our garage, put a bedroom over it. And I was talking to uh, one of the, the workers and 
you know, he's like, oh, what do you do for a living? I'm like, I'm a pastor. And he just, it, it was cool. He instantly wanted to talk about spiritual things. I had a couple really long spiritual conversations with him. Just a very interesting, thoughtful person. And, and he said to me, almost right off the bat, he said, yeah, he says, I, I really respect Jesus. I believe he was a historical person. But, but he said, I, I just don't believe he was God. And, and I think a lot of people, you know, understandably think that. I mean, that's kind of an, a major claim to make. And, and so there's this common reading of Jesus that he was... Uh, a, a good teacher, but not divine. That's sort of a common reading. The problem with that reading is when you actually start reading the words of Jesus. You know, this kind of comment here that Jesus makes is not unique. It's not like this is a little verse that Christians have taken out of context and exploded to create this mythological Jesus. No, no, I mean, this kind of talk is just soaked throughout all of the Gospels. It's all over the New Testament. Heck, it's in the Old Testament. When you look at Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, it's typically a larger than merely human kind of figure. So, so you know, what are we going to do with this? We have to somehow come to grips with the fact that Jesus made these kind of grandiose claims about himself. He wasn't just a prophet, or he never claimed to be just a teacher. He, he wasn't, you know, one of these sort of self-effacing religious leaders who, who kind of shrinks into the background. He was like, no, you know, I'm, this is my father, and I'm in his house, and... Who are you? And, and, he, and then we'll see through Luke, he claims things and does things that are only the prerogative of God to do. So what do you do with that? Uh, maybe you've heard the famous argument by C.S. Lewis or others. It's called the liar-lunatic-lord argument. Maybe you've heard that kind of line of reasoning. It, it's interesting. It sort of goes like this. When you look at the claims of Jesus and how what he claimed to be, he has to be one of three things. He either has to be a liar... Either he knew that he wasn't God, but he talked like he was, which makes him actually pretty evil, if he understood that. So you have to say, was he an evil liar? Does his story seem that way? A second option is that he was a lunatic. Uh, he thought he was God, but really wasn't. And when people think they're God, but they're not, we typically ascribe to them some sort of you know, delusional state. So, so maybe he was delusional. Say so again, you look at his life. You say, does he seem like a delusional person? You know? And then the third option is, well, maybe he thought he was Lord, and he was. And, and so you have to wrestle with his story. Because Jesus makes such enormous claims that, that you have to somehow sort it out. And he's one of those three things. And so I would just encourage you, if, if you don't know Christ or you're not a Christian, to just you know, keep investigating the person of Jesus. And it is hard to understand. I understand. <laughs> Mary and Joseph, just his own parents, they didn't know what he was talking about. And it took later, look at verse 50, uh, actually 51. It says, his mother treasured all these things in her heart. So I, it took time for Mary to process everything Jesus was saying to her. It, and I think it takes time sometimes to, to come to understand who Christ is. You have to read his story. And you know, I put that challenge out there again. If, if you've never read the story of Jesus, read the story of Jesus. Read Luke. Most influential person in human history. Have you ever read his biography? It's just a few pages. Read it. Read Luke. Or read it. You should read all the Gospels just to be educated. Read it. And as you read it, just listen to this guy and see who he is. You know, the reason people become Christians is because they meet Jesus. That's why people become Christians. They don't become Christians because they're persuaded by the church or they really you know, believe that the church has a perfect track record through history. <laughs> you know, they don't become Christians because they see the people in the church are perfect and wonderful. No, no. People become Christians sometimes in spite of all that. They become Christians because 
they meet Jesus. And they go, ah, it's about Jesus. This is who it is. And it's out of love for Christ that people become Christians. So look into Jesus. That's what it's all about. So understand that he's a unique person. I just encourage you to investigate that and search that out for yourselves. Don't take my word for it, anyone, or C.S. Lewis' word for it. Think about it. Read him and, and see what you think. But then there's a second aspect of Jesus here. Not only was he a unique person, but I see in, in that little sentence he says in verse 49 that he also had a unique mission. He had a unique calling and purpose. Uh, he wasn't in Jerusalem by chance. This was a purposeful thing. Look again at what he says in verse 49. He says, Didn't you know I, here it is, had to be in my father's house? I had to be there. Not, didn't you think that that's my, where I've been? Or don't you think it was probable I'd be here? He's like, no, no. This is where I had to be. Now, there's a sense of purpose to that. In fact, in Greek, it's even stronger. There's a little Greek word here. It's, it's uh, called day. It's a particle. It's delta, epsilon, iota. Just a tiny little word. But, but the translation of it is something like uh, it is necessary or it must take place. So there's a sense of determination and determinism here. This had to have happened, Jesus is saying. And what's interesting is when you look up that word day in the rest of Luke, what you find is that Luke uses that word sort of theologically. He uses it to communicate the idea of fulfilling God's mission or purpose. So it's not just like it was necessary for some random reason. No, it's necessary because this is God's plan and I'm accomplishing the purposes and will of God. Sometimes even the plans of God that were promised thousands of years ago in the Old Testament. And now I'm fulfilling it. So there's a sense of of direction here. Uh, Take out your sermon notes for a minute. Which is this insert in your bulletin. What I did in the sermon notes was I put down some of these instances of where day occurs within Luke and it communicates this theological idea of following God's mission or purpose. Uh, If you look at the front page there, uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 43, says, But he said to them, I must preach, or literally in Greek, it is necessary that I preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. So people want Jesus to stay. Hey, Jesus, you got a good thing going here. You're popular. People are listening. Jesus says, i got to go. Where are you going? Why would you go now? Because it is necessary. God has sent me on a mission. I'm fulfilling the mission. Or uh, the next one down, Luke 9:22, And he said, the Son of Man must suffer, or literally, it is necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Or, or jump down uh, to, to Luke 22:37. It is written, Old Testament, Isaiah 51, uh, Isaiah 53 rather, he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you, this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, that which is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. So when Jesus says here, going back to Luke 2, I had to be here, what he's saying is, I am accomplishing and fulfilling the divine purpose for my life. Jesus had a mission. And he was always on mission. It's as if there's kind of two realities operating. One reality is the typical human reality of which we are all a part. It's going on journeys and pilgrimages and travels and losing kids and finding kids and going to work. You know, just the average ebb and flow of life that we all experience. But then there's like this this other reality Jesus was on where he was following a a program. He he had a subroutine that was operating. He he had an internal compass 
and it, it took him different places, places that confuse us. We say, Jesus, why are you doing that? Or why are you acting this way? Jesus, why in the world are you going to Jerusalem? Don't you know the people there hate you and they're going to try to kill you? Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. It's part of the plan. What? You know? and, and so he's taking directions that don't necessarily fit the normal flow of events. But that's what happens when you're following God. You do things sometimes that don't make sense to the world. Because God's mission is often counter-opposed to the, the purposes of this world. And so that's how Christ was. He, you know, it's like a goose flying south for the winter. How does a goose know to do that? And how does a fish know to migrate? Well, it's just kind of like hardwired in. And so Jesus just had this, this mission that he was on. And the exciting thing for us as Christians, for those of us who know Jesus, is that when you become a follower of Jesus, when you come to believe his unique identity, and he becomes your own savior, you're also incorporated into the same mission. That's the cool thing. It's not really a choice. It's not like this mission if you choose to accept it. It's no. This is your mission if you're a Christian. We are called to participate in that mission. It's the same mission. In fact, I'm not going to read them, but if you continue reading, I also included quotes from the the book of Acts. Acts is the story of the church after Jesus. And what's interesting is Luke uses that same word, day, except now it's on the lips of the apostles and the Christians as they go out preaching the gospel. It is necessary. We must preach the gospel. We are included in the plan of Christ. And so all of us as Christians, you know, this is part of our plan. Like, what are you here for? Why are you using up air and resources and water? Why are you here on planet Earth? What's your life about? And as Christians, we have an answer to that. It is, we are here. The reason I exist on planet Earth is to glorify and enjoy God by lifting up the name of Jesus in my own life, in my family. And it doesn't matter what you do for a living. You don't have to have a preacher. You don't have to be a preacher to have that mission. It doesn't matter what you do for a living, how old you are, if you're in school, if you're single, married, young, old, poor, rich, whatever. It doesn't matter. We all have the same mission as Christians. It's to lift up the name of Jesus and to glorify God. And where you are in life is merely the arena into which God has called you to do that. See, my concern for myself and for all of us as Christians is that it's too easy just to float along with that world culture and just follow along, you know, thinking that life is about the latest fashion and the latest movie and the latest song and the latest computer upgrade and the latest car model. And, you know, we just kind of get into the pattern of the world as if life was really about you know, golf and sports and entertainment and making money, as if that was like the end-all, be-all of it. But, you know, someday we'll come to the end of that. Someday we'll die. And then what? What was it all about? And as Christians, God, God tells us what it's all about. It's to serve Him and, and to lift up the name of Jesus and to be poured out for the sake of the gospel, whatever you do for a living and whoever you are. And I think sometimes this kind of just sit in your inner tube and float down the world stream even comes into the church. Sometimes we come into the church and we just have the same mentality. I'm just kind of floating along. Church is here to meet my needs. Then I float out of the church. And, 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 you know, we haven't really changed mindset even though we're sitting in a church. But, I mean, of the church of all places, we should be on mission. And yet even here we just kind of, you know, float along in our, our inner tube and... Isn't this lovely? Isn't that great music? Oh, I love the sermon day. It's wonderful. Now what? You know, this sort of flow. I, I read a, a quote this week. Someone actually gave me an article. I can get it for you if you want a copy of it. This is one of those uh, two by four articles. You know, pow! Oh, 
oh, that hurt. Uh, and it was a great article. So I want to share it with you. Uh, and actually, if you look on the back of the sermon notes, I, I quoted just the first paragraph so you can get a flavor for this article. And this is from a guy who's down in some big church in ten, uh, where is it? Yeah, Tennessee. My geography gets fuzzy when I get south, so I guess I've been here in New England too long. So here's, his, uh, here's the quote. He says, I go to church with 5,000 singers. I can't call us worshipers yet because many of us come to church only to feel better, be served, and hear our favorite songs while our kids are kept in shorthanded preschool classes. Ouch. And after church on Monday, you won't catch many of us singers at the retirement home writing letters for two hands, hands too bent by age to hold a pen. A few miles north in East Nashville, you won't find us playing basketball with a child of another ethnic background, giving his mom a dress or a job. And down the street, few will bring blankets, toothbrushes, or a kind word to the rapists and thieves in the county jail. We're great singers, but to be honest, some of us are lousy worshipers. Oh, yeah, and then the article just gets better from there. <laughs> oh, so convicted by that. You know, I, yeah, you know, such great music. Our praise team is, is great, you know, and, and, and I hope you're enjoying the sermons, and I hope you enjoy the building and the room, but, you know, what's your part in the mission? I mean, we don't just do this for fun. This is a mission. And, you know, every week... Maybe you're sitting there enjoying and being fed, and I'm, I'm thankful for that. But, you know, every week we, you know, there's announcements in the bulletin. Hey, we need a few people to help out with the soundboard. Hey, we need a few people in the nursery. We need some ushers. Like, does that bother you? I don't know. Does it bother you to just absorb, 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 and never give back? Maybe that's just how you are. I, mean, I don't know. Is, and how much of that is a consumeristic mentality? Why don't you not only enjoy the benefits of the mission, but join in the mission of proclaiming Christ? You know? And that's just the church. I mean, that's an easy one. That's a no-brainer. Helping out in church. I mean, come on. We have jobs where you can jump in once a month. I mean, that's easy. What about the rest of my life outside of the walls of the church? You know, where is God calling me to, to be poured out for His name and for His glory? I, was, uh, I shared this with a couple of brothers this week. I got together and prayed with a couple of brothers. And I, I was just talking about how, you know, it was like either Monday or Tuesday I went out for a prayer walk. And, you know, I just, I just spent most, thinking about this passage, I, I spent a lot of the prayer walk just grieving. Grieving myself. Like, I'm such a soft, wimpy Christian. Have I ever really given of myself? I'm in this comfortable church. I'm with all these nice people. I'm in America you know, I have such a comfortable, cushy existence here in America. And there are brothers and sisters who are denying themselves around the world for the sake of the gospel. And I'm here, you know, on, on this beanbag, you know, preaching a sermon once a week. And I, just, I was just so grieved with myself. I'm like, do I even know what it means to serve Christ? Have I ever really been poured out for Him? And I, I can't say yes, you know. And I, I'm, just, I'm sickened by myself. I'm sickened by my, my softness and my complacency. We're talking about the greatest message in the world, and I'm just, I'm so out of touch with it, I feel like. And, and it's so discouraging to me. But, you know, God is so faithful. Uh, so, so I was praying about that with some brothers this week, and then I go to the gym Friday, and, you know, I go to the gym. I have the luxury of going to a gym. You know, I mean, that's, that's what I'm talking about. And, and, and I go to the gym, and I'm working out, and, doing my thing. I love, love going to the gym. It's you know, sort of where I get my frustrations out and I have a great guy that I lift with. We have great conversations and hang out or whatever. And I'm walking around the corner to get some water and, and I see this guy I know who's a Christian and he's like, hey, can you talk for a minute? I was like, and he knew I was a pastor. I was like, yeah, yeah. He goes, look, 
I'm going through some really tough stuff. Do you have a few minutes? And you know, I'll be honest, like the go with the world stream is like, hey, I'm busy, I'm working out here. I mean, <laughs> look at this. <laughs> Does it look like I have time to listen? I mean, look. <laughs> But then it's, you know, fortunately, there's those times when God is just like, mm, and she goes, you know, and by God's grace, I was able to say, honestly, you know, yeah, I have a few minutes. And, you know, guys just going through, it's going through all the stuff we all go through. Just the, you know, slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. And, and all the stuff we go through in life. And I just listened, and he was just down and down on God, and, you know, what, what's going on with this? And, you know, so I just got to lift up Jesus. And I got to say, you know, don't focus on the church, don't focus on the people, the circumstances. Keep your eyes on Jesus. You know, it was a short conversation, and, uh, and then I, you know, I went back to, to working out. And then when I was over working out at another place, I, I saw this other lady who. You know, she really, really, really needs Christ. She's really lost. And, but I've, I've known her. She's come to church a couple times. I've been able to share my faith with her. I've just bumped into her in gyms over the years. And, uh, and so I, and some, I hadn't seen her in years. I saw her again. I'm like, hey, how you doing? And she's like, oh, it's good to see you. And so we talk. I'm like, how you going? And, you know, it's like, hey, I've got a space in the pew next to me at church. Why don't you come this Sunday? She's like, oh, I really need to. I'll think about it. And, you know, and it was just that, again, you know, God helped me to to just step out of the ebb and flow of normal life and sort of stay on that higher level and say, what opportunities God have for me this week to lift up the name of Jesus? And what I find is they come very often. I'm just usually, you know, clueless, just going about whatever routine it is. So I say that as a word of encouragement, not to exalt myself, which would be ridiculous, but, but to just encourage you and say, even in the midst of our failures and weakness, God is so faithful. And he will still use you, despite how badly you may have blown it all week or all last ten years. Start now. And like Mary, right now, just say, Lord, I offer myself to you again. Be faithful and use me. I want to be about your mission and your purpose. And whether it's something as simple as saying, hey, can I help in the sound booth? Or maybe it's just walking into work this week. And, and instead of just walking into work to do your job, walk into work and before you get through the door, say, God, is there anyone here for me today? I'm ready. And just, you know, turn on that mindset and you'll be surprised and amazed how faithful God is to use you and and use broken vessels like us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you, Jesus, that you are never off mission but that you faithfully and perfectly accomplished your calling to go to the cross. Oh, Jesus, have patience with us, your body. We, we are so slow to believe, just like the disciples. We're no different. We're so slow to understand. But I thank you, Jesus, that, that you came to save us. And, and you're even in the process of our slowness saving us. And so, Jesus, I pray, use us as your body this week. God, rescue us just from the, the sickening narcissism of our culture and our own souls. And God, pull us out of that trash and help us to live for your kingdom, which endures forever. Lord, this world is passing away before our very eyes, and yet we hold on to it as if it's something. God, forgive us and give us that vision of your unique identity, Jesus, and our participation in your unique mission. Use us this week. We ask all this in the name of Christ. Amen.